Civil Wars don't have the sweeping tank battles, sneaky submarine escapades, or the mass death by famine that characterize your big Hollywood wars, but it's exactly their intimacy that makes them venues for exceptional cruelty. Nothing brings out the savagery in a population quite like the opportunity to finally, finally punish their next-door neighbors who have consistently refused to fertilize their lawns despite the neighborhood covenant in addition to leaving their Christmas trees up until January 20th. And what better way to express this neighborly consternation than by draining the offender's blood into the gutters with masonry trowels and basking in the lamentations of their legal spouses. During normal wars, we can barely muster an abstract hatred for enemy soldiers without drumming up some tin pot xenophobia or F-16ified neoliberal geopolitical world-building chorus line. Civil wars enjoy a much lower barrier to entry, needing to appeal only to the blinding, all-consuming hate people feel for the family next door who otherwise completely shares their culture and values only didn't tweet in favor of their preferred candidate in the Democratic primaries. The Spanish Civil War of the late 30s wasn't an ancient conflict between adjacent tribes, nor a social cleansing where everyone who wore glasses and owned a pencil was denounced as a class enemy and beheaded, nor a fight between an agrarian, slave-owning caste of second-class aristocrats and a mercantile abolitionist nation of bustling arms dealers, nor a bureaucratic and industrialized persecution and enslavement of an innocent and bystanding ethnic minority by a complacent middle class in thrall to a fast-talking nutcase. It was basically a slap fight between liberals, conservatives, and the Catholic Church over how to govern Spain. Well, we don't have strong impressions of it in most of the West because we too often either never heard of it or see it through the sun also rises lens, glamorizing it as a time when leftists wore berets and turtlenecks and Picasso painted murals and people fighting a lost cause could still retreat into the mountains and sit around a campfire debating dialectical materialism. In contrast to the dozens of millions that would die in a few short years, it seems almost quaint and kind of boring. Likewise, the authoritarian isolationism of the subsequent 35 years of Franco's rule and the peaceful transition to constitutional monarchy that followed dulled the aftermath into feeling like a song that faded out after the first chorus. But the victory of the nationalist dictatorship of Francisco Franco over the Republican rebels was bloody indeed, and repression and resistance continued long after the nominal end to the conflict, especially along the border with France, where the Pyrenees provided cover for the long tail of the Republican resistance. This film is set in 1944, long after the attention of the world had shifted elsewhere, set in the unobserved nightmare of the early years of the Franco regime. These are wounds still felt in Spain. Our main character, Ophelia, is a preteen protagonist still in the part of childhood where fantasy and reality are hard to distinguish. Her mother has thrown in with stepdad-to-be Captain Vidal, a sociopathic phalangist tasked with stamping out any straggling maquis in his bucolic border region. His command post, a large rustic farmhouse, happens to be, as my realtor might put it, labyrinth-adjacent. Ophelia meets a creepy giant fawn in the center of this labyrinth, also echoing my recent real estate transactions, and he sends her on some scary-ass quests. We come to admire her determination and bravery, especially in contrast to the decidedly non-fantastical and oftentimes chicken-shit behavior of the adults in her life. Vidal likes executing people for no reason. Ophelia's mother both fails to protect her and suffers under Vidal's sadism and quackery while also carrying his baby. The film ends in both triumph and tragedy after a staggering couple of hours of freaky magic 
tree toads, ghouls, torture, chilling violence, and what Ben might describe as game-changing fantasy imagery. This film thrust director Guillermo del Toro into the public consciousness in a big way, also as Ben would say, and he's gone on to direct some really major films and win tons of awards. It's a powerful mix of cultural, religious, economic, and political ideas and images, and played a kind of truth and reconciliation role in Spanish culture, as I would say. It doesn't really care if you're from somewhere else, and doesn't take any pains to explain the setting or the symbolism. This works in its favor. The echoes of the Spanish Civil War are bouncing around the public square again. In many ways, it's a better analogy for our present political world than World War II will ever be. It sometimes feels that we're in a world separated from dark magic by only the thinnest gauze. And what we really need is a brave little girl to feed giant exploding bugs to a tree toad. You're getting older, and you'll see that life isn't like your fairy tales. The world is a cruel place, and you'll learn that even if it hurts. Today on Friendly Fire, Pan's Labyrinth. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that used to believe in a lot of things that we don't believe in anymore. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I was going to do that in like a nice lispy Castilian uh-huh. accent, but uh, I lost my nerve. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be turned into someone's soundboard. Uh, yeah, well, but I was like, are people going to like take great umbrage with my use of a Spanish accent? I get a lot of shit about my resting face from so many people. Mm. I've got a bad resting face, but not, not bad. I would argue that uh, that Sergi Lopez's resting face is among the most evil we have seen in film. <laughs> that guy is great casting. He is so evil, and when you start the movie and you're like, "Oh, here's the evil guy," yeah, he double and triple and quadruples down on it. Sometimes you get a sense of someone's evil just on their own. They can be evil by themselves, but you see his evil reflected in the innocence of of his new wife and his new, and the new daughter that is brought along. Like you get this compounding aspect to him that just gets worse and worse. At what point did you know that Ophelia was going to kill him? I was rooting for it right away. <laughs> you know, the, the foreshadowing of that little bottle of sedative, which we see Ophelia looking at, it, you know, it spends a lot of time in the frame. Mm-hmm. Definitely, you knew something was coming with that. Yeah. I, I can't say that I, that I, in the middle of this movie, could see where it was going. Yeah, that's true. Because there are two realities in this movie. And you don't know which one is going to win out. You know that world has to win in the film because you can't have that world be the one that is sidelined. I think it says something major about the magical world being the good world and the real world being the evil world. Although the magical world is full of peril. Isn't it also full of hope in a way that the real world isn't? Well, But you don't know whether the fawn... The fawn seems like he's really 
treacherous and yeah. monkeying. Whose her. side is the fawn on? Right. I I kept expecting there to be a twist where where the fawn was using the girl to advance some fawnish aim that <laughs> that that you know we didn't know about yet or whatever. Right. Like, oh yeah, I'm trapped in this labyrinth, and only if you do these these tasks three can I escape and take yeah. over the world or something. It felt like Fawn was going to be end boss at some point. Particularly when he asked for the sacrifice of the child at the end. Yeah. That was the thing that we'd been leading up to this whole time. And that's a very biblical idea, though. Like the kill the baby here, and then I'll give you what you want. Tricks. I didn't actually want you to. Right. But, but you know, when she eats that grape and the monster kills the two fairies and the fawn says, you're out, you know, that's not the end of the fawn. You know that, you know that there's, yeah. but, but he's like, one of the great things about the movie is the fawn is gone for a long time Yeah, at a crucial moment where you're like, what is happening? Like the fawn was all we had. Yeah, and without without him, there's sort of an absence of hope. Like, when we're in the real world for a long time and shit gets worse and worse and worse in those moments, you're relieved to see this character that you that you were so unsure of throughout because he's your only chance at redemption. I was really mad at her for eating that grape, though. Come Me on. Me too. What the hell, man? <laughs> yeah. Just you Haven't had... you read any Greek myths? You know you're not supposed to eat the grape. You had one They job. set her up very interestingly, though, because she goes to bed without dinner, right? She's got to be right. hungry. It's not just her wanting to know what a grape tastes like after so long. It's that she was punished and is hungry. Right. And I think that's crucial. It's not just precocious kid stuff. The movie doesn't, doesn't highlight that as much as it maybe would have in the hands of a more unself-assured director. Um, I also read that that scene was in part about the predations of Catholic priests against children. The the pale man is uh, is is more interested in her than the than the feast being Ooh. like a a big like a metaphor about about that which right. I uh he had this incredible feast, up- but he was eating the fairies instead. Right. And this is this came out five years after the spotlight uh, stories broke. So, But it doesn't feel like a contemporary reference. It feels like one that goes back to Middle Ages. And this also doesn't really feel like a – like this is, I think, it's in the top ten of best grossing foreign language films in the U.S. market. But it really doesn't feel like it's – geared toward a u.s audience like it's definitely not giving you the same kinds of um you know safety nets story and and context wise that movies that are for a u.s audience would yeah this is a this is a spanish movie for spanish audiences and and it is fucking amazing so it also works for other audiences it's also a rated r fairy tale which i think is an interesting choice, right? Yeah. Uh, if you're going for the broadest possible audience, maybe that is a uh, unconventional combination. God, it is so much more viscerally brutal than so many of the films we've seen. Like, it, it's probably in the top three, right? For uh, friendly fire films. So many small details that are... that 
that turned the character of uh, the captain into into so much uh, deeper of a character than uh, than than he could have gotten away with, right? Guillermo del Toro could have made him a cartoon. But the thing, the the offhanded comment to the doctor, like if it comes down to it, choose the child over the wife. Uh, yeah. The fact that when he gives his little torture speech about like, you know, here are as he pulls his tools out, he gives yeah. this little sadistic kind of like, uh, by the second time, by the second tool, you're going to be and my it's friend. Like rehearsed because he uses it again. Because yeah. we see it again. You never get to see that guy do the speech twice. Yeah, like we've seen we've seen that speech in a in a thousand movies, but seeing the guy do it a second time is so is so illustrative of of what a he's like a very simple person in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, and it and it and it increases his sadistic depravity. It makes you see into him. In a way that him constantly pulling out the watch as a reference to his father is also great, but but more of a cartoon than just that simple detail. His admonishment of his wife at that dinner in front of the guests, I thought was another example of that. I think everyone has felt that way socially, like where someone goes right over the top of you publicly and and that kind of hurt from someone that is supposed to love you uh i thought was like that's a moment made for adults to understand even more the 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 detail that that slayed me in that moment was when she was like i'm going to bed and left the table all the men stood up but the two women yeah stayed seated and were clearly whispering to each other about her yeah some shitty class just bullshit just like meh, meh, meh. yeah and that was and that's in the back of the frame right mm-hmm. it's like it the film the camera sees it and is meant to see it but it's not foregrounded you don't it's not a cutaway close-up it's just and all of that was so the detail of that was so i don't know just like humane and perceptive there's something there's a quality about a disney myth film that tends to obscure all the parts for adults right and this is a weird uh mirror version of that where like all of the peripheral adult stuff that's just for you and me is the centerpiece and the kid stuff is almost at the periphery in a film like this that's true of like modern disney films but i think the original cartoons uh you see a lot more you're talking about song of the south yeah (laughs) (laughs) but like cinderella there's a lot of brutality in it. Yeah, yeah. Right, social brutality that I think they leave out of Frozen. Right. Because kids today are idiots. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> everyone gets a medal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Boomer. Both sides. Um, is, that an, is that an Olaf impression? What is that? No, that was just half mm. of an aspirin in Ben's cola. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I prefer an Alka-Seltzer in my coffee uh-huh. if, uh, if we're mm-hmm. making beverages here. Right. Yeah. Nice callback. Let's talk about the context that this film is set in. It's like during World War II, but Spain is not really like a theater of the conflict. It's This is like Francoist forces mopping up at the end of the Civil War for them, right? Well, well interestingly, uh, uh, like a little known side of world war two is the is the 
Maquis resistance to Franco, but also to the Germans in the Pyrenees during World War II. So it's not, we don't hear about it very much, but the Maquis, so we see it in a lot of World War II movies, right? Because a downed pilot is trying to get to Spain. Right. Uh, We see that all the time. Somebody behind enemy lines is just trying to get to Spain. And we we will often see the pilot make it there, and then some guy he will, hopes the final jump will be the jump home. The jump home, that's right. Yeah. But we see him arrive at the frontier, and a guy with a with a sloppy hat and a shotgun materializes from behind <laughs> a tree, and we know our pilot is safe. But who that sloppy hatted guy is is a member of the Maquis, who were the resistance, and they were fighting Franco. Right? Spain wasn't safe. Spain was supposed to be neutral but it was a fascist dictatorship wasn't spain also trying to get germany to like give them the basque country and and like the parts of southern france that are catalan like weren't they weren't since since germany was in charge of france spain was like asking like hey what about if uh what about if we took over a little bit more of uh the border well that part of france was the was sort of the one corner of it that the germans never really occupied right they didn't care about Biarritz. I mean, I guess they did. It was part of the part of the Atlantic wall, but down around the mountains, there wasn't any, there wasn't very much German presence. And so, yeah, the, I mean, Spain was exerting its influence, but the Maquis were not just fighting Franco. They were also, they were part of the, whatever the general allied war effort. And it's a, it's a thing that isn't, we see so many, references to the resistance. And I don't think that story's been told very well, except behold the pale horse, uh, sort of, I mean, tells the aftermath story. The Maquis are the guys that are all like, we've got to get these damn fascists out of the Pyrenees. (laughs) And the thing is they lost. I think that's your best impression. That's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was Gregory Peck, right? Yeah, yeah, Just yeah, to be yeah. clear? Yeah, okay. yeah. That's, that's my Peck. <laughs> <laughs> you are Peck's bad boy, Ben. <laughs> oh, boy. But, but we see the Garda Seville in this movie, second movie where we get to see them in just recent memory. Yeah. They're weird hats. But we see them working in conjunction with the army um, as part of this project to eradicate the rebels. The phalangists were kind of like the national socialists of Spain. Is that correct? Yeah, the the Francoists. It's like it's like a one party state, and the one party is also kind of the way like structured like the military. Well, yeah, right. Just as just as happens in all fascist governments, right? The the distinction between the military, the police, and the government blurs. Hmm. You don't say. Like one thing that I could not ex- escape thinking about watching this movie was like it has felt dark and desperate in our country a lot lately, and fortunately we are not in the the fascists are mopping up the the resistance in the hills phase of of things. Like, I think you'd like, find I think you'd find it very difficult in America for the fascists to have defeated the rebels, given. I mean, it would have to be like a genocide or a, I'm sorry, a massacre. A genocide suggests that it is a, 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 a sort of a one 
group. There's that an gets ethnic killed. element. Right. Yeah. Whereas here they would have to destroy all of the West Coast, which would be very hard given, I mean, given that Subarus are nuclear proof. <laughs> yeah. And if, and if they destroy our Subarus, we'll get in our kayaks or on our mountain bikes and escape <laughs> via other means. Let me highly recommend the book Ecotopia. I mean, not as a good book because it's not. It's a terrible book, but it's a great it's a great idea. That's a great plug, John. That's why we do so many advertisements on Friendly Fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing quite like getting the Roderick endorsement <laughs> for any product or or offering. <laughs> this, this book will give you lice, but at the same time, it's it's good good on the imagination. But yeah, the the I. I mean, we don't see in Europe anymore a situation where a, a regional administrator will have sort of godlike power. But there are plenty of places in the world where you would still find that some Commandant Marcos uh, would would end up, you know, having um, total authority over a region. Yeah, Captain Vidal really reminds me of the of the Colonel in. Rambo three, like, like out here, I'm in charge. Like I am the final word on who gets to live and who gets to die. Yeah. Right. There's no, there's no like due process of any kind. Like he kills that guy and then finds out that he really was hunting rabbits and doesn't care and just uses it as like a, a teachable moment for one of his lieutenants. Everyone's name is Garda Seville. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Spetsnaz was the yeah. name of that soldier in Rambo III. here. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at the Spanish Civil War and kind of contrast it to the American Civil War, for instance, like one of the things about the end of the American Civil War is somehow the idea that we were going to, that the union was going to be restored. Uh, for the most part, eliminated the idea of there being a rear guard action on the part of the rebels. You did not see the Confederates retreat into the mountains and wage a guerrilla war against the Union for 50 years. Now, they did it in a different way. They never assimilated. They never they never followed reconstruction are the hills in this metaphor eight chan yeah the, 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 that's right the confederates re ultimately retreated to eight chan right uh whereas in the spanish civil war it was a civil war and the fascists won but there but that didn't mean that the resistance the resistance was already fighting in the hills they didn't just lay down their guns and say all right we give up until the 50s I think the I think the eventually they were all the leaders were captured. This is the behold the pale horse story, right? All the leaders were captured or driven into France, and eventually it just ran the the re, the revolution ran out of steam. This may be or resistance. I mean, a dumb question, but as the representative of those who do not know on Friendly Fire, I'm going to ask it: What did the Spanish expect from their alignment with fascist Germany? Was it about self-preservation by aligning yourself with who you thought would win? Or did they truly believe in, in what they were going for? In, 19, in the 1930s, fascism was, just as we see now, what became very popular and populist because it seemed like a absolutely viable next form of government. I mean, all these ideologies were vying with one another. And it wasn't clear, not just like which would win, 
but which was the better form of governance for human beings? Because in an industrial or post-industrial world, which was pretty new, like how do you make a government of So it was a philosophical people? alignment and not a practical both. I mean, yeah. it was it, Franco was the Franco was the test case for European fascism. And so everyone, Mussolini, Hitler, they were all watching Franco to see what it looked like. And they funded uh, the federal side of the war. It was a, you know, they used the, the, the Francoists used German arms in the war because the Germans were like, hey, let's test out these Stutka bombers and see how they work. It was really like a, it was like a, um, a dress rehearsal. One thing I wondered about with the fascism is that there's like rationing and stuff. And if the government is distributing all of the stuff, doesn't that have more of a, like, isn't that more like socialism than capitalist fascism? Well, that's why it was, that's why it was called national socialism. Um, because it, it, you got to rebrand it. Well, and it, and it, that was meant to somewhat undercut the appeal of the communists. Like, no, no, no. The communists say that we're going to, we're going to have this collective redistribution of wealth, but we're doing that too. We're going to, we're going to flatten society. Scenes like the dinner party where, where these captains of national socialist industry, you're talking about how people are starving in their country while at the same time enjoying eating from the horn of plenty on their own dinner table. The, uh, the hypocrisy of that is fairly pronounced in this film and the complicity in the, of the church in the way that works too. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah all right mistakes were made well if you think about Mussolini's story he was a communist and a, and a and an intellectual and then his his switch to fascism was done really philosophically i mean in the early days he was a right a journalist and a writer and was like you know what actually more the more i think about it what we really need is a strong hand well you know like with politics like you want to be bringing more and more people into the tent you know you yeah, can't just yeah. you can't just condemn somebody for having had a different belief earlier in life <laughs> yeah that's why we we're endorsing welcome back to fireside chat on kmax with me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the west coast oliver wong and morgan rhodes go ahead caller Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. 
take yourself to Apple Podcasts, you know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight, a great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. But I do think we feel we feel now that you know that a lot of those ideologies have um, have proved themselves in the in the world. Um, but just as the, you know, just as there are people that oh, not, I mean, talk about both sidesing. Just as there are plenty of people in the world today that will say, "Well, communism uh, was not." There's never been a real test, you know. There's never <laughs> been a real test, right? Because the Soviets were, or the Soviets were fascists ultimately. And so communism is still a viable ideology because um, it's never, you know, because because it didn't because get a fair socialism shake. is commonly coupled with fascism, most commonly. Well, I mean, all authoritarian governments end up being fascist. And if you're controlling if you're if you're centrally controlling every aspect or, or a lot of aspects of society, what else? Are you you got to yeah. have somebody that you got to have some police. Right. right? Uh, and the idea, you know, the idea that socialism would be a sort of police free, it's, it's the idealism socialism, but there are people and you, and you see them now in Europe, you see them all, all over who would make the case that fascism had never been given a, a true shake because it was combined with Hitler's racism. Gotta try it guys. Kumbaya, you know? Yeah. Right. Like let's roll it out in France and Hungary and, and you know, Slovakia or whatever. That email address is fuckoff <laughs> at maxfunkenstein.sex. <laughs> but you know, the people that the people that are arguing for for a fascist or I'm sorry, you know, like a strong central government and a and a strong leader, they don't see themselves as Hitler acolytes. Yeah. They just want the borders tight and they want we're not the bad guys they want a big man a big man not these little men i mean i I think that this movie has like some really interesting explorations of that the when the doctor gets kind of caught having um kevorkian the the rebel that they have in the in the tool shed he he says to yeah um, we should really pivot into end of life rights as a conversation here right on the heels of <laughs> that conversation well, we just had <laughs> he says to vidal like you're you're like you're the kind of person that can unquestioningly follow orders but i am not and most people yeah. are not what a strong indictment too that was awesome yeah, yeah. like and i think that that's like like it really is a sick burn on vidal and and the doctor knows he's dead so it's like you might as well go out with both middle fingers up, I guess. That's right. That's is right. Vidal able to comprehend that and take it as the burn that it is? He no. is almost so single-minded throughout the film that you that his eventual takedown feels uh, less cathartic because I he's not ever a thinker to the degree I feel like that could ever feel that kind of pain from that kind of cut. Well, yeah, and and like I don't think that anybody that is like that would ever like understand that moment for what it is either like like if if they screened this at the white house there are certain people that would you know understand the movie but the main guy would certainly not he would identify with the captain the ultimate burn is when Merce- when he starts to like give his soliloquy about how he wants to be remembered and mercedes says no your son will never hear your name and you will not be remembered at all and you see the recognition on his face his whole project 
which was yeah. to do what his father had done and leave a boy. He was being erased and you saw that was the only the only thing he understood. I love the momentum of that scene, the the moments leading up to it and then the eventual death of Vidal, I thought was paced perfectly because the film comes up to a point you you register Vidal's recognition that oh shit like my master plan is blown my kid's never going to know me and because he's incapable of of feeling that or anything throughout the film and he's instantly killed uh i loved it i thought that was great we did not give that character a moment to come full circle and to recognize his folly or to have any sort of emotional breakthrough at that moment at all like he was put down in a way that was righteous because he's a psychopath, he's never going to. He he doesn't yeah. have the the organ in his in his body that would enable him to to change. What was fascinating about that is, or fascinating to hear you say that, is that it's the one place that I wanted more catharsis. Hmm. I wanted to watch him suffer for two more beats, and they because as we went up to that moment, given the brutality in the rest of this film. And the film's willingness to just deliver unto everyone yeah. the yeah. harshest take. To have the camera linger on the hacksaw going through the guy's leg. Right. I thought that the Maquis were going to kill the boy in front of him. Yeah, when when he was pa- handed over, I was like, oh, God, like we're going to see a baby broken over someone's knee. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really expected that to happen. And when the movie said, no, the Maquis are going to take this baby and raise him as a rebel yeah. or, you know, like raise him as a boy who never knows his, his origins, and then they shoot him, they shoot the captain, it all happened so fast that I was just like, I just was a little bit starved for more resolution, but I know that that's a strength of the movie, not a weakness. Hayden Christensen plays the baby in in Pan's Labyrinth too. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you get to fully get uh, the recognition of when he figures out who he is, right? There actually was a Pan's Labyrinth too in in pre production, and Guillermo del Toro decided to scrap the project so he could direct Hellboy too. <laughs> Interesting Whoa. choice. Was it going to be Pan's Labyrinth 2 Electric Boogaloo? Uh, I think it was going to be Secret of the Ooze. <laughs> I love Guillermo del Toro's choices it, like in his career. Like why shouldn't he go do Hellboy 2? He's he's one of our best our best creators, our best directors. Was Hellboy 2 good? It doesn't matter. Like right. like he's a guy that's just as capable of making Pan's Labyrinth as as Blade 2. What if he went into porn? Would you still feel that way? Yeah, I'm sure he would make great <laughs> pornography. Be amazing. Wow. Imagine the hand jobs when when the hands have eyeballs in them. Guillermo, if you're listening, <laughs> why not why not pivot to porn right now? We could use a little bit more art in porn. His, his next project is uh, is Pinocchio, scheduled to come out in 2021. Porn? I bet that is going to no. be so scary. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that nose fucking though. Yeah. <laughs> The special effects obviously are incredibly interesting. If not, I mean, I'm not sure if they hold up. I don't know what you would have done with CGI that would have been better. The The fawn was very strangely built. I think the effect that works is, is Doug Jones as an actor is the effect that works. As the fawn? That, that there is a man in there as both 
that character and the pale man eyeball hands guy is magical to me because there is something so unnatural about that performance. It just looks alien physically. You could have made the fawn look slightly more human or more goat-like or something, but it but he really looks like almost like a praying mantis. Yeah. For me, there was an uncanny valiness of it that worked in its favor. Like, you know that's a guy, and it's a combination of CGI, too, and it's, it just made me uncomfortable in a way that was very effective. The Pale Man, certainly. Yeah. There's, I don't know how you could make that scarier. Yeah, that's, that's the stuff of nightmares, for sure. His arm waddle yeah. was the thing that really sold it to me. Yeah. Yeah, when he starts moving and all those little bits start f- flopping around, <laughs> just makes your skin crawl. There's there's something nightmarish about the slowness of a chase too, and and the way the pale man chased her toward the the chalk drawn door was there was like an inevitability to that that made right. it all the more tension filled. It was great. Did the did the hourglass add anything? Like I feel like it would have been just as scary if she'd run for the door and it had closed and we had no idea why. It just added to the to the fairy taleness of it. I think. I feel like Ophelia at the center of this movie. It's 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 so we see we've seen it a couple of times where a child is at the center of a movie and we've seen amazing performances by young people. But Ophelia has to deal with so much and she's so lovely. Like you cannot help but fall in love with her at the beginning of the film and she does that amazing thing which is you continue to be in love with her. You fall more deeply in love with her with every passing moment of the film until you're I mean at least I was so invested in her and each new trauma you bear the full weight of it her internal logic to this whole thing is really effective because you begin from the premise that she is a believer in the stories that she reads so of course she gives herself over to the idea of the fawn and the fawn's mission but also she's not particularly good at the missions or like, for example, putting the root under the bed of her mother, like she gets caught doing that. She's not good at this stuff in a way that a kid wouldn't be. And I thought that was a, that was a really great way to shade her character. Like she feels very real in that way. She's not, she's not acing every mission the Fawn's giving her in a way that made the entire film feel like it was in danger of, of failing. And she's also not political. Like this whole the whole setting is about this existential conflict between the Republicans and the fascists. And she really is, she's way too young to have an, uh, an informed opinion about it. And she doesn't even like the film doesn't even try to make her try to have an opinion. It's just that kids have kind of a, a gut understanding of right and wrong. And she, is trying to do right by people. And as the movie progresses, her transformation is, and the, the one that connects the two worlds is that what begins as a kind of fascination with fairies and, and intrigue about the fawn because she loves this. uh, She loves that aspect of the world. She is a magical realist. As the film goes on, we, more and more realize that the fawn and the labyrinth are all she has left, right? As one after another thing that matters to her is, is stolen. 
And that's the only reason that the two, the two halves of the movie belong together as much as they do, right? It's not just a fantasy world that she's living in. It's a, because the fawn does not care at all about the revolution. The fawn never references the war doesn't care about her dad isn't interested doesn't even yeah the fawn's about reinstalling the princess only and doesn't even regard the world that he's visiting in order to make that happen really right which could be which could be off-putting or i mean it's what makes the two sides of the movie feel unrelated until you realize it only it all hinges on she needs to go into the labyrinth and that that is why his potential evil his desire to sacrifice the boy, her refusal, it's what gives it it gives it all that additional weight. Yeah. But that's coming back to that, you know, kids understand fairness and right and wrong in this kind of inherent way that that grounds the movie in a kind of reality. That's why you on this podcast ground it, Ben. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me on Friendly Fire. Um, do you guys want to hear a moment of pedantry from uh, somebody complaining about this movie on the internet? So hard to imagine what it could be. Yeah, it must feel really good to complain about this movie. <laughs> I found a train pedant in the IMDb goose section for Pan's Labyrinth. Yay! All right, I will. Uh, I will retract that comment. I'm. I'm always about me too train pedants what was wrong with that local during the scene of the villagers coming to the mill to receive their food rations a modern locomotive horn can be heard in the background oh it's a horn pedant a subset of train <laughs> pedantry is train horn pedants i thought it was going to be mm-hmm. about that awesome scene where the rebels had blown up the railroad tracks and the that was crashed. a great looking setup what do you do about that can you dig a can you dig a a, a a train out of dirt like that and get it back going again? I think you just finish the job and you bury it there. No. I mean, if you can raise a sunken ship and repair it and put it back to sea, you can pull a locomotive out of the dirt. As long as the boiler didn't explode and it didn't look like the boiler had exploded. Yeah, the boiler looked intact. That's one train that's not running on time. Oh my God. Sure why, do you, why do you say things like that in the voice of Colonel Troutman? <laughs> <laughs> Better bring a good supply of body bags. It's kind of a Colonel Troutman moment for Vidal, right? He's got the yeah. he's got his jacket over his shoulders in that scene. That's the usual suspect's moment where he he figures it out. Like, well, if they didn't steal anything from the train, it must be a diversion. And then shit is popping off. I understand I'm probably feeling it the way I was meant to feel it, but the frustration of that lock not being busted even after the fact, in order to obscure uh, the provenance of the key. Like, come on, guys. You're really hanging Mercedes out to dry here uh, by, by not doing that. <laughs> Mercedes's brother, Pedro, is not the sharpest tack. He's not, especially because Mercedes so clearly is. Yeah. She is the badass of the film. I mean, if I'm going to be pedantic for a moment, the the way she wraps her knife in her clothes seems like the knife would fall out all the time. It felt to me like a very sort of like Basque, like a reference to a kind of mountain girl thing where it's like, where do I keep my my, <laughs> my, my knife? Wrapped in my waistband. You never know when you're going to need a paring knife. Yeah. It just felt, and I don't mean mountain girl like Jerry Garcia's 
girlfriend. I mean, mountain girl, like. Fascist stabbing kind. Yeah, right. I was very satisfied when uh, when Chekhov's knife was finally brandished <laughs> and used. Is this a Star Trek In reference? the way that it was on, on Vidal. Like when she's able to cut out of her ropes and give him and give Vidal the Joker, the Joker cheek. Well, it was the, very satisfying. The Joker right? cheek was great, but she stabs him hard in the shoulder and the chest, and somehow like missed the missed his heart or his neck. He does a lot of running around after that. He sure does. I would be a real baby about that that whole all those stabbing wounds. I would I would not be able to do my own stitches on my cheek. That was I would not hardcore. be chasing anyone into the labyrinth. Lots of wince moments in this movie. The, the stitching, you're right, Ben. That's definitely one of them. The the drinking of the shot and seeing it uh, ooze through the gauze was another one. I definitely spent quite a bit of time thinking about whether or not I would be able to stitch my own mouth back together. I think of the three hosts of Friendly Fire, you're the most likely one to be able to do that, I think. My first thought was <laughs> that you would need to do a a better job if you intended there not to be a scar. Uh, or or um, if you wanted to minimize the scar. And he seemed to be doing it to really give himself a Joker scar there. If you don't stitch up your cheek, would you just have a big mouth forever? Like, would it heal I that think, way? I think you would have real problems. Uh. I think that would be bad. Make your mouth like two inches wider on either side. Yeah. <laughs> Rawr. That yeah, would be, I mean, if you could do that, that would be a body modification thing. Yeah, yeah. There would be people with forked tongues and that running around every downtown. No explanation for Willem Dafoe's mouth. Uh, that's just a natural <laughs> thing. He didn't He didn't use a knife for that. Way to get a slag on Willem Dafoe and not, slip it in. Not slagging Willem Dafoe, one of the, one of the best mouths He's in the game. He's canceling his donation to MaximumFun.org right now. I love Willem Dafoe. Best in the business. Top 10 best Willems. <laughs> um... One thing about the film that I didn't love and something that we've cr criticized in uh, several films is how Instagram-y the, the color palette felt. Like it, it really felt like uh, a lot of scenes were probably shot super flat and then they just, you know, turned the dial like as hard to the blue as they could, you know, when they're outside in the rain or whatever or or just warmed the the colors up like within an inch of credibility every time they're in the forest with the partisans. It felt like myth-making technique to me though in a way that I that I enjoyed. But it wasn't liked. but as Ben was saying it it wasn't just when the yeah. uh, the monsters were there. It was also it also happened It was consistent in reality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. like the it really started to bother me toward the end where like, you know, the last 15 minutes of this movie take place at night in outside in the dark. But Vidal's shirt is like bright red where the blood has soaked through it. And then everything else is is pallorous and blue. It did get a little 300 there. There's a well at the end and everything, huh? You elegido bien. I know Ophelia is ostensibly the main character of this film, but I think you could really make the case that Vidal is. Ben and I have talked about this before. Like, could you rescore the Batman film 
and make the Joker the protagonist and Batman the antagonist just by changing the musical cue. And I feel like I, that, I are you both sidesing I the would, Dark Knight? I would never do this here, but Not what the I'm, Dark Knight, the original Batman, John. The theory is that like the Joker is 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 a man of the people, and Batman is a billionaire arms dealer that goes and beats up petty thugs at night for fun. And the Joker is destroying all of the symbols of wealth, like the art museum and putting, you know, he's adulterating all of the cosmetics in town and stuff. He's a, he, he's a, you know, he's like a, he's the underclass fighting back against the, the oligarchs. Not our original take, but we're, our, our theory is just, just change the score and, and you've got a whole different movie on your hand. By referring to that, I am not attempting to, uh, to switch up who is the protagonist and antagonist of this film only screen time. I'm only talking about, yeah, in terms of screen time and, and weight of character, I feel like this, you could really make the case that Vidal is the main character of this film. And I think it would be okay if you saw him that. I don't know because he doesn't change. Like he doesn't undergo any character change. He is single-minded until he's got a bullet in his brain. He's given so many interesting scenes, though. Like, I don't disagree with you at all, Ben, but, like, so many memorable scenes. The constant shaving, the tinkering with the watch that is that his father intended to be dead. He just can't, he can't allow that watch to, to be dead. He keeps <laughs> it going. The slashing of the mirror with his razor blade... I, as much as I hated the Vidal character, I really found him interesting and compelling. I feel like that is all examples of what, I mean, just brilliant filmmaking. The, the, his relationship to that watch is never fully elucidated, but yeah. it is throughout the movie. And you cannot, you cannot but wonder about his relationship to his father, whether that relationship with his father is what made him into a monster. It clearly did. Yeah. But the, the slashing of his own throat in the mirror gives get it gives that character so much complexity, if not depth. Yeah. Uh, all of those are, I mean, why you're never on his side, but at least in that moment, you're like, all right, well he does hate himself and that's good. Yeah. I, I don't understand why, <laughs> why filmmakers, more filmmakers don't watch, um, watch this movie and take those clues, take those cues, like give your villain Give us, the viewer, a couple of things that make us feel smart. A couple of things that make your movie smart. That fastidiousness of him physically is played out in so many other scenes. Like the constant shaving, the idea that every hair on his head is perfectly in place is just another version of him keeping all of the food and medicine neatly organized in a in a barn that's behind lock and key. Like every part of his life is so controlled. And then you introduce the messiness of a pregnant wife and the daughter that she's bringing with him. Like, and that is, that's a conflict that begins and just never ends until he's dead. Even the way he, he shoots every person that presents any kind of problem. Yeah. He's just, he just puts a gun to them and shoots them. It's all of the threads that are sticking out from the sweater. Like he's clipping them like that. That one guy in the very beginning, like God, one of the most brutal scenes is like not, not breaking a wine bottle over that guy's face, but using it, the flat end of it to smash his nose in. 
It's awful. And the idea that that was uh, maybe a, a tale of mistaken identity because there were rabbits in that guy's bag, like like there are no loose ends to that guy's life. Well, and, and including every time they fight the rebels in the forest, they, they then go around and kill, they coup de yeah. gras everyone. Everyone. In a way that just feels completely methodical, but also like no prisoners, yeah. no, no loose ends to tie up, walk around and give everybody a bullet. No due process. But he's also like, I mean, the, the train, the train scene is a great example of the fact that like from a military standpoint, he's actually not that great. Like he's not that great. He totally misses that he's being, he's being drawn away from his base by a fake attack. And that, I think that's like maybe my favorite part of his character is that like, there's like, he is so brutal that he's dangerous in every scene, but he's also trickable, you know, like he has serious blind spots. His need to tie up every loose end is, is what ends him. And the, the, it's another, I think, example of how good this script is and how good its realization is, is that the rebels are not portrayed as especially noble, but also that's not played for laughs. The rebels are not made to be especially clumsy either. The way the army is presented as sort of bloated and not that good, like no one is that good in this movie, but it's right. never played for, it's never made ridiculous. Right. Righteousness is never equated with uh, effectiveness in this movie. Right. How satisfied were you that the end of Ophelia's story occurred uh, within the realm of the magic versus the real world? I mean, it's not like she's going to end the war with her activity, but I think if there's one part of the film that I was a little let down by was that that was where the film ended instead of in the real world. We got to know a lot of real world characters that are uh, summarily forgotten by the time Ophelia's story ends. And it's not just because they're dead. I mean, we know there are more of them out there. I guess it only lends credence to the idea that this is a this is a myth film, and that's what it's about, and it's not a war film. It hurt me. It hurt me, actually. I didn't want her to die. I didn't want this all to be a fantasy of hers. I wanted her to physically, corporeally walk into the underworld. I did not want the passage from the real world to the underworld to be a passage undertaken by the spirit rather than by the body, even though you wanted a blue portal. I did. I wanted, I wanted her to ascend to heaven on the back of a steed from the dome of the rock. I did not want her, even though, even though at the beginning of the movie, we're made to understand at the beginning of the movie, she actually walks out of the underworld into the light. And that character dies. And we know she will be, her spirit will be reincarnated in a person above the, above the world that will come back down. But the fact that, it, that, that she made that journey as a, as a soul rather than as a body made it feel like maybe this was all a dream. And it, it it definitely was played for tears. It's a little bit. It was a little bit of like the little match girl, where we yeah. see her die, and 
and it breaks your heart, but she goes on to live in in her kingdom for all eternity. To, to sit at the left hand of her dead mother. Right. But that means that all those people down there are not really under the earth. They're souls, you know, that this is happening in a, in a soul realm or a heaven realm, which felt less pagan. And the paganness of that story was was kind of key to its, you know, it's it's located in the forest. The fairies are bugs. You know, there's he the fawn smells like dirt. So <laughs> it doesn't smell like frankincense. The story up until that point is so good at jacking up the stakes that by concluding it in an almost stakes-free manner, like she's going to be fine forever because she gets to go live in the spirit world, is unfortunately. It unfortunately undercuts all of the tension that we felt throughout the entire film. At least that's how I felt. I want to inject something that may complicate your feelings on that, which is a quote from Kierkegaard that Del Toro cites as part of his inspiration for the film. Here we go. Uh, goes, the tyrant dies and his rule is over. The martyr dies and his rule begins. Okay. Does, does Ophelia have a martyr role in this film the martyr if there is martyrdom and i imagine that there would be right the ophelia would be something that the rebels would use she her death could be used by the rebels to influence popular opinion look how right. evil the monsters are they killed this uh 11 year old girl but we never see that or it, it nor is it even implied Right, you have to you have to go there in your own mind as you walk out of the theater. Ben, was the story of Pan's Labyrinth two, uh, Ophelia just sending the fawn out to fight for the allies? <laughs> it was it was Ophelia being installed as princess and gradually becoming a fascist. <laughs> gradually realizing oh, that that's her, dark. her underworld power gave her like yeah unlimited the, the authority being becoming corrupted by by royalty right <laughs> the the conclusion of this film feels so final i'm really surprised that there was a, ever even the idea of a of a sequel no lo sé exactamente mi capitán pero no menos de 50 i went to spain for the first time in 1988 and really that was only 10, 15 years after the end of Franco, and you saw a lot of it still, right? All the middle-aged men you met had had grown up under fascism, and there still was a lot of that, like, pants pulled up to right under their nipples, kind of old Spain. A lot of resting peck face. Yeah, a lot of bulls playing, and sense that, thing, sense that, that the city should be clean and run in a certain way. Oh. And I looked hard for... Uh, some kind of media that I could consume that would explain to me what Spain had been like and what I was seeing in the, in the residue of Frank. It's only 15 years. I mean, 15 years ago uh, right now was the mid two thousands. Like it wasn't that divorced from ye olden times, but boy, there wasn't a lot of depiction of it. I still don't know. I still can't really picture what it was like because it wasn't behind an iron curtain. It was like a fascist government that that survived for 35 years in the world. I would, I'd be really curious to see a Pan's Labyrinth 2. Just to, 
see what what's going on in that forest. She's well, just, you know, yelling at mushrooms. Guillermo del Toro doesn't shy away from making sequels, so maybe he'll circle back around and do it. Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth 2. What about that? <laughs> all uh, all I can find about this uh, this sequel is it's called 3993. It starts in 1993, and then there's something that happened in 1939 that's relevant to the story, and it's set with the Spanish Civil War in the background. Wow. So Intradasting. Yeah. So there are ideas out there. Oh, here's another quote. One of the one of the writers uh, is interviewed in uh, ComingSoon.net. His name is Sergio Sanchez. Right now, they're reopening many graves from the Civil War, and many people who disappeared and now have enough time have, has passed that they're reopening the graves, and there's a lot of people who can finally find their ancestors and stuff. So the story deals with that. Have we crossed over into the magical realm of reviewing the Friendly Fire film we've discussed? I think so. (laughs) Uh, One object that stuck out to me, and I'm sure you guys too, is, uh, is the chalk that Ophelia uses to draw the doorway into the spirit realm and also the exit. Uh, it actually is not a one-time use item either. I thought that was neat. And so on a scale of one to five pieces of chalk, we will rate 2006's Pan's Labyrinth. I wish I had seen this film in the theater. I don't know if you guys did. I did not. I've never seen it before. Uh, yeah, I. this is my first time. This This film blew really big when it was in the theater. I remember it was all anyone talked about for a long time. And... Uh, like the way I reject many things that are popular uh, for whatever reason, I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't participate and I wish I had. I think this would have been a really fun movie to see projected big. Um, I think whether or not you can get with its magical realism is going to be whether or not you like this film. Personally, I was able to give myself over to it pretty quickly. I liked this world that, that Guillermo del Toro constructed even though, like, if you were to describe the film just to a friend, it sounds insane. Like, what is with the labyrinth being right next door to Vidal's fort? How come he never goes into it ever? There is disbelief you must suspend in order to enjoy a film like this. But I think there's a certain amount of that you need to get with to watch any film. I don't think this film is particularly unique in that way, but I think you know going into Pan's Labyrinth that it's going to be magical, and so you're there to experience that anyway. I really loved it, and I loved especially the little girl who played Ophelia, Ivana Baccaro, like a great child actor, Uh, and I think the entire cast is rounded out wonderfully. I mean, uh, every, every character in the film has their moment to shine, in a way that just doesn't feel like uh, character service. I think the doctor is one of those guys that like he's sprinkled throughout judiciously and then he gets his like big moment that, that made me feel very proud for his character and for the actor playing him. I think there are many examples of that in the film. The story in totality, I was riveted to. I really wanted to know what would happen. And I think 
Unfortunately, I was motivated by the rage that I felt toward Vidal. I don't know if that was like a healthy feeling to like just, I'm in it to watch him die. How is he going to die? Like, give me that blood. I, that's what I was in it for in a way that I, I think maybe Guillermo del Toro was not intending that to be my reason to uh, to stick around in it. But um, I thought I thought most of what he did was effective and affecting outside of its ending like i i have to admit like the the magic of the ending i found a little bit unsatisfying i wished i wish that the the final scene took place in the real world in a in a way that that would have felt more uh satisfying but i think for that reason i'm going to give it a strong score but not a perfect score uh four and a half pieces of chalk I think one question I have for you, John, is at what age would you show a child this film? Yeah, I wondered it a lot because I, you know, I I actually Googled, can I show my eight and a half year old this? So much of this would be great for a kid. I feel like there is a television cut of this film that yeah. that could be great. What what I got off of the internet was, do not show this film to your kid. <laughs> yeah, they said, you know, like <laughs> a, a very sophisticated fifteen year old could learn a lot here. Uh, but, I'm having nightmares about Pale Man right now. Yeah, right. An eight-year-old would just be like, what is happening? Yeah. And also, like, there, it's an 11-year-old girl that all this is visited upon. Right. And that's for adult audiences, I think. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, when I have a kid, I will wait till they're at least nine years old to check this out. Uh, <laughs> Your kid um, is obviously going to be very gifted, Ben. Your kid is going to be a 30-year-old, seven-year-old uh, right off the bat. <laughs> I, I take that as a compliment that you guys think that I'm capable of generating somebody that is precocious. <laughs> Maybe your kid can watch this uh, when they go away to tennis camp. <laughs> this will be their tennis camp movie. Uh, I really love this movie and I don't have the problem with the end that you do, Adam. I think that for me, it's really effective that it doesn't, it doesn't give you exactly what you want. And I, I will even say that like I'm I have some personal discomfort with the the kind of like depiction of being elevated to royalty being the like ideal outcome in western media that feels like a very problematic phenomenon that pervades our culture and I I I tend to really react badly to those things but um because of the character and the time and the place in this film it felt like kind of the right way for her to conceive of her own end whether that's something in you know that that really happens to her or if it's something that her imagination provides her as as her brain shuts down um jeez that's some dark shit <laughs> wow well i mean <laughs> I mean, you don't know, right? Like, you don't yeah, know yeah. whether the the movie is trying to say... Like, I, I think it's intentionally ambiguous whether she's dead at the end of the movie or not. Some and people see a white light. Other people see uh, three thrones, one of them unoccupied. John sees a blue portal. And, sure. Right. It's know. the three, th three throne theory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that I have a strong feeling which of those interpretations... I agree with. I I kind of like that it's ambiguous and um it's a it's a really challenging movie. It, it's one of the hardest watches I've had in the Friendly Fire project, but I 
I think it's really worth watching. And I think that it, it having been a super popular movie at the time is, uh, you know, a credit to what an amazing accomplishment it is. So I'll go ahead and give it, uh, I'll give it five chocks. Wow. Big fan. Five chocks. Big score. Yeah, you know, there's a big there's a big gulf between four point five chalks and five chalks. It's true. More than there would it's be a between half a chalk. Yeah. Well, but even like three point five chalks to four chalks. Yeah. It's not as big because it's a it's like a Richter scale thing. It is. Uh, yeah, it's like a. It's compounding it's like interest. Atmospheric pressure. Yeah. It just gets more and more. <laughs> How about you, John? Did you did you like the movie? You know, there was so much to like about it. I really loved the internal geography of it. We're at a mountain camp and we have a real sense of how the mountain camp is laid out and the specificity, not just of this period, like post-Civil War, mid-World War II, frontier uh, pl- place, um the specificity of the pregnant second wife of the captain being the mother of our protagonist, like everything, as you can, if you imagine him sitting at his typewriter and writing this script, just the inventiveness and, um, and the, and the bravery, the willingness to not make any of this easy. And then the success of, of actually situating us there and making it, not necessary that you know anything about the Spanish Civil War to be into the film. The rebels, although they were, I think, fairly realistically depicted, also were a kind of, you know, like legend of the rebels, too. But again, not not particularly noble either. Um, all of it's so gifted. And, you know, I, I watch a lot of these movies wondering what the filmmaker is doing and why and i don't let filmmakers off the hook when they're lazy you know i just don't like it if somebody if you're going to review a movie you have to review it as the product of a mind and the more minds involved generally the less good the movie is and this is just a singular creation but there were you know there was stuff that that drew me out and some of it is, and I think most of it, most of it is just in the way the, the mysterious world was, um, art directed for lack of a better thing. You know, the bug that turns into the fairy, like we never really zoom in on the fairy and see their face. We never, we're, it's never clear. We see their heads being bitten off. We do. But like, are those fairies grotesque or are they beautiful Certainly Ophelia doesn't recoil at them. If he had wanted to make the fairies beautiful, he could have. He chose not to. If he wanted to make the fawn more natural, he could have, and he chose not to. So me being, you know, kind of not bounced out, but but, but wishing for something different is maybe just me uh, wanting to make my own movie. We finally got there with you. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're listening and if you if you have $50 million to give John. That's been your damage the whole time. Yeah. You got to make your own movie. I believe that I should be the director of all these films and I would have done a better job. Yeah. That is the problem of the 
of the lay film critic. Yeah. You think you could do better? You think you could do better. Yeah. Right. And as, as somebody who's made some creative products in in life, I I make the mistake of thinking that my knowledge transfers. Right? All you have to do is like know the difference between a good tambourine track and a bad tambourine track to know <laughs> also how to make a fairy in a in a like a Spanish apocrypha. Those are compatible skills. Right. But I'm going to give it four and a half pieces of chalk. I feel like the only thing that keeps it out of five pieces of chalk is maybe what you're saying, Adam, about the fact that if I were to describe this movie to someone who hadn't seen it, the fact that I would have to go like, no, 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 no. It's this sounds terrible and it's great. There's just enough in there that causes you to, I don't know, question it a little bit. That feels like a degree of difficulty aspect to it. It really is. Like this film rises above its, its story. Let me ask you this. If she, if he had stabbed her and she had fallen on the edge of the, the, the well and her blood had dripped down and it had not, what that would suggest was that she was not an innocent, which is, which is bad. That was set up. But if she had just died, if she had died and hadn't, her arm hadn't fallen in the well and her blood had pooled on the side of the well and not dripped down, would that make this movie, it would make it a thousand times more horrible. (laughs) (laughs) But would it be better? I like to fantasize about all the ways that the films we've watched could be more horrible. (laughs) I think that's an interesting uh, thought experiment. I don't know. Uh, where are our guys is a good question to ask about now. My guy is the fawn. Whoa. How do you have the guy as the fawn? Because I believe in second chances, just like the fawn. Wow. All right. I guess I guess a guy can't be constrained by the corporeal world. No. Fantasy guy is a type of guy. That's, that, that's Pick Ben's from guy. Wherever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about you, Adam? Did you have a guy? I mean, I'm going to go way in the other direction here. Uh, (laughs) Mercedes is rugged. And as an embedded spy, uh, she must maintain the sort of coldness uh, that ensures her survival. And yet, like, she's always packing that knife. I think about, I thought about her life so much when I watched this movie. Like, every time she wakes up, She's wondering whether or not it's the day that she's going to die or that she ends up killing Vidal. And you can interpret her wrapping of that knife in a couple of ways. Is that a self-defense knife that she will use if she has to? Or is she keeping it ready for murder? Either thing you decide about that knife uh, is satisfying. And I, and I sort of imagined both of those as being true. I really love her relationship with everyone in the kitchen. Like... That scene where, oh God, Vidal says his coffee's burned. Like she goes back into the kitchen and she's like, all right, guys, he didn't like the coffee. Everyone knows the score. (laughs) Like Vidal cannot be satisfied by anything. This fucking asshole. Time to remake the coffee. I love how she can both be uh, friendly and conspiratorial with people who work with her, but also totally a different kind of conspiratorial with the Maquis. And uh, I really liked how multidimensional her character had to be in order to survive. Uh, really great character and a great performance by Mirabelle Verdu. So she's my guy. Good guy. 
Who's your guy, John? There were a lot of good uh, guys in here when the when the locomotive blew up and the captain ran out to visit it. He was talking to the engineer or the or the uh, I'm sorry, the fireman probably or the brakeman, whoever. And he was like, what did they steal? And the guy's attitude was just like they didn't steal anything. And he was so (laughs) he was so just like groucho about it. Just like, yeah, I don't know, man. They didn't steal anything. So I don't know. Take that with you. It was neat meeting someone uh, in this setting who did not give Vidal the respect that he was used to and the fear that he was used to. Right. That was a character that just didn't know him. It felt like because he was in because he worked for the railroad. Yeah. He's really the only townsman we meet, Uh, uh, you know, like regular Spaniard Mm -hmm. who was just like, yeah, yeah. What can I tell you? (laughs) Uh, But he's not my guy. I liked him. Oh, Uh, fake out guy. Yeah. The two biddies, the two women who were obviously like part of the respected class who were totally shitty. Yeah. Mocking our, our mom. I felt like we're great characters together. The two of them, you know, the, the crones, the, the harpies, but they're not my guy. My guy was Mandrake baby. What? (laughs) Mandrake baby crying in a puddle of milk because Mandrake baby was the, was the moment in this movie where I was like, okay, all in. Mandrake baby was such a good baby. Yeah. Sounded like a baby, acted like a baby. Yeah. But it was a Mandrake root. And you know, Mandrake is a hallucinogen. Mm. It's a narcotic root uh, used in ye olden times. So is the mom kind of microdosing Mandrake in yeah. order to uh, in order to feel better? The Mandrake baby was taking the sickness out of the mom. Yeah. And the Mandrake baby needed a little bit of blood. A, a milk bath and a little blood every day to do its job, and its job was just to be a just to be a baby. Would you know Mandrake smell by entering a room? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just a it's just a root. It's not like the Mandrake baby was ground up or anything. Well, I mean, Vidal smelled the Mandrake and thought it smelled awful. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. I think I feel but like that was probably the milk because it had been there for a bad while. milk. Bad yeah. Milk. But then the Mandrake baby gets thrown on the fire. And I felt like I mourned that Mandrake baby. It's another squirm scene in this what movie. What a terrible way for a Mandrake baby to die. So I'll always ride for Mandrake baby. You'll learn this in the, in the Eagle Scouts. If you, if you burn a, a wet with milk Mandrake, your smoke will be dark. Hmm. <laughs> It'll attract attention. Hmm. And uh, ensure your rescue. Mm-hmm. Right? Weren't you an Eagle Scout? Ben, is that true? I never earned my Mandrake baby patch, though. <laughs> that should be our pin. Mandrake baby patch. <laughs> too late. Yeah, Far that's going to be next year. Hey, uh, uh, but in, in the style of a, of, a, of a Boy Scout patch. Is Mandrake, Mandrake baby patch the name of the children's music band that the guy from the President of the United States of America <laughs> <laughs> is doing? <laughs> Should we uh, pick what our next movie is, guys? Wait a minute. There's a there is a uh, there's a quote in the Bible 
that says... Oh, yeah, I forgot. Bible study, and then we pick the next movie. <laughs> that says, uh, let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourish, where the tender grape appear, and the pomegranates bud forth. There will I give thee my loves. The mandrakes give a smell, and at our gates are all manner of pleasant fruits, new and old, which I have laid up for thee, O my beloved. Where the, where the fuck was that quote, Guillermo del Toro? Quoting Kierkegaard. Fuck. The mandrake produces yellow berries that smell fruity, but are more similar in flavor to tomatoes, and its leaves smell much like fresh tobacco. It's in the nightshade family. Yeah, magics are, uh, mandrakes are used in magic and witchcraft. According to the legend, when the root is dug up, it screams and what? kills all who hear it. Wow. Fuck. See, I would have known this if I'd, uh, if I'd paid attention in Eagle Scouts. There, there are way, ways to dig up a, mandru- a mandrake root so that it doesn't scream. You've been warned, friendly fire listeners. Do you know how you do it? You dig around the mandrake and then you tie a dog to it. And then <laughs> you run away from the dog. And when the dog chases you, it pulls up the root. But then the dog dies. Oh, no. This is, what, this is how bad witchcraft is, you guys. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I feel like... A solid 30% of our listeners just dumped us from their support because you badmouthed witchcraft. But, uh, <laughs> no, should I think, we pick our next movie? I think, the, I think the half of our listeners who are conservative Christians are like, finally, they come out against witchcraft. Does the 120-sided <laughs> die scream when you roll it? Let's find out. All right, here we go. I want you to roll it good, John. I want a banger to close it with because I want to get those numbers up. Okay, here we go. Forty-nine. Forty-nine. Seven times seven. Lucky seven times seven. Forty-nine. Shit. Fuck. That is... Shit fuck. Lucky seven squared, man. This is a World War I film set in Arabia, 1962, directed by David Lee. No way! Lawrence of Arabia. Wow! That's a well big one. Well done, my friend. Well done, indeed. Good roll. You guys are so excited. Uh, I'm the host of Friendly Fire that has not seen this movie, so this will be my first time. So you know, every- I haven't seen it either. What? Whoa! What? Wow. So now, now listen. There are times in the calendar where the various remaining cineramas mm-hmm. or cinesrama right. <laughs> uh, around uh, around the West will show Lawrence of Arabia in Cinerama. Mm-hmm. If you can, Fuck. go see it in Cinerama because that's how it was That's how it was made to be seen. It is epic in scope. I plan on seeing it in Feel Around. I'll, yeah, I'll show it to you in Feel Around. <laughs> the last thing I saw in Cinerama was Star Trek Picard with Adam. Ugh. Yeah. You guys are such fucking dorks. Wow, big up, guys. Uh, I've heard that Lawrence of Arabia is the Rambo 3 of uh, of the Peter O'Toole oeuvre. I hate you. So. Uh, please uh, please give to maxfun.org slash donate to support. Just, it's just maxfunkenstein.sex. <laughs> maxfunkenstein.sex is all they need to know. Yeah, that's it. The one place. 
Support our show. We love making it for you and your uh, generous donations help us offset the cost of hating one another. <laughs> it's true. Our, our affection cost. for each other can be bought. <laughs> Only you can make that happen. We'd really appreciate it. So we'll leave it with Rob's from here. And a reminder, Rob's wouldn't have a job if you didn't support the show. So keep him employed also. Support Rob's jobses. You going to do your famous sign-off, Ben? Oh, yeah. So uh, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Listen to me. Friendly Fires and Maximum Fun Podcast, hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is a podcast that's made possible by the support of our listeners like you. To make sure that Friendly Fire continues, visit MaximumFun.org slash join and pledge your support by doing so you'll gain access to our monthly pork chop episodes as well as all the other max fun bonus content if you want to chat about our podcast on various forms of social media just search for our discussion groups or use the hashtag friendly fire you can find ben on twitter at benjamin ahr adam is found at cut for time john is at john roderick and you can find me at rob k schulte thanks Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.